Hey, Deserving Listeners, it's just me today. I thought I would respond to a bunch of emails from you about dependent personality disorder. I recently did a deep dive on dependent personality disorder, only available to patrons, and a lot of you listened to that and had some questions about it. You want me to see if maybe your dad has dependent personality disorder, that sort of thing. So I thought I would get into it. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor, and I've treated many people with dependent personality disorder. Anonymous patron writes in and says, I'm wondering if my dad has dependent personality disorder. He has always been very gentle and kind, but quite unmotivated. He is extremely intelligent, but never accomplished much in his career. When I was growing up, he always had different low-paying jobs. Everyone always loved him wherever he worked, and even though he loved us kids and was a thoughtful person, he never wanted to go to any of our sports games or performances or get involved with our schooling. My mom, my mom had to do everything, and I mean everything, for the family. She was the main breadwinner, the social planner, and the house planner, and there were many arguments between my parents about this issue. My dad would seem cool and calm and then explode when he was pushed too much by her. Growing up, I had it in my head that he was sweet and loving, but lazy. I know his own mother was very controlling in many ways and had her own struggles with OCD. Could it be dependent personality disorder? All right, so it's possible, but before going into that, it's also possible that he suffered from depression or maybe even an addiction that you didn't know about. But certainly some people can be depressed or even socially anxious, and that can cause them to... So so just to review some of the things that you said about him, you say he's gentle, loving, sweet, you felt loved by him, but he seemed unmotivated and lazy and never accomplished accomplished much. He always had low-paying jobs, and he wouldn't go to any of your sports games or your performances or get involved with your schooling, didn't really act like a parent. He was like a an uncle that happened to live in the house or a big brother that hasn't left the house yet because your mom had to do everything. She had to work hard. She had to do all the house stuff. And why would that be? You know, why would you have a sweet and loving father who just didn't accomplish much and and didn't seem to care. I I think by implication, Anonymous Patron, you're saying, you're thinking that your dad just didn't seem to care about the responsibilities. Well, it's hard to know, you know. So let's say if he was depressed. Well, he can be loving and caring, but it's hard to be motivated for one's career. And you might even have bouts of depression that interfere with your career. You might have bouts of depression that interfere with your ability even to leave the house. You could also have social anxiety or even OCD yourself, and that could absolutely interfere with your career and interfere with leaving the house and going to games or you know, being responsible in the way that a, that a parent usually is. But it also could be dependent personality disorder. It also could be uh, other kinds of things, but it could be dependent, meaning that, but there's not enough information here, but just going off of what you're saying, uh, it's possible that deep down he believed that he was incompetent and the world was dangerous. Why? Because you mentioned that his mother was very controlling and had a lot of anxiety with OCD. 
So this is the breeding ground often for dependent personality disorder. It's a breeding ground for a lot of things, but it is the uh, breeding ground for dependent personality disorder. Again, listen to my full deep dive on that. But one of the things that we find in the research and in my observations is that people with dependent personality disorder often have parents who are controlling or anxious or both. And what this can do is it can tell the child that, one, you aren't capable of doing things on your own and you need me to do things for you. And two, the world is a very scary place and without me, you are going to suffer or fail or die or something. So when you're 10 years old and you believe, one, that you can't do things on your own, you really you can't even choose what to wear, you can't choose what to eat, you can't choose who to be friends with, you are incompetent. You can't do anything without your controlling parent there you know, leading you on every step of the road. And you also believe that the world is very scary and that the world uh, is a, a very difficult place to navigate. And thus you really, really need someone that knows the their way around the world in order to protect you. So having a mother that was like that could have been the breeding ground that, for that for, his, for your father. And then you see him as an adult and he is not really trying to do things, not because he's lazy, but because he actually believes he can't. He thinks he's actually completely incapable. And he might not. And the thing about a personality disorder is that they they don't have insight usually, meaning that they don't have insight into their disorder, meaning that, you know, they don't they don't understand that their perspective of themselves is excessive or distorted when they believe they're incompetent, you know, like. Say uh, his wife, your mom says, hey, you know, maybe you should try to work your way up to a manager or something. And in his head, he immediately thinks that's not possible. I'm going to screw it up. Dependent people usually have that schema and they'll just be like, yeah, no, um, I'm just (laughs) I don't think you understand. But he might not fight back verbally like that because he's too shy or too ashamed or something. And instead, what he'll say is, why are you always on my back? Or I don't think I'll I'll get the manager job. Or he'll just ignore the question altogether. So uh, because people with dependent personality sort of often have a lot of shame. And there's also passive aggressiveness, which could also be possible where as a child, because you were beaten down by a controlling, anxious parent, you have a lot of unexpressed anger and you express it in these hidden ways particularly towards people close to you. And as your as your mom was pressuring him to step up to the plate, he might actually say, okay, fine, and then passive-aggressively will sabotage himself or others so that he doesn't actually have to rise up, rise to the occasion. And again, it's not because he was a jerk face. It's because he just believes he can't do things on his own. He, he needs... He, he might have buried a woman who is very responsible because he fits well with that sort of person. And your mom might have buried someone who is very irresponsible because she fits very well with that sort of person. All right, let's go on to another email. But first, actually, let me tell you that the rest of this episode is just for patrons of the podcast. So if you want to listen to this, you have to be a patron of the podcast. This is, I guess, kind of a a uh, you know a follow-up to the deep dive on dependent personality disorder, which... Uh, if you want to become a patron, listen to that, then you can listen to that. And then you can listen to this episode where I go through different cases that people are presenting. 
Uh, there looks like there's about five or six others that I will be evaluating. All right. So become a patron of the podcast and you get to hear this whole episode and uh, do so now <laughs> if you want. <laughs> it's really the best way we know that you like what we're doing and know that a portion of your pledge goes towards various charities that we support, including our own scholarships that we're giving out and our own art grants that we're giving out. We give various different uh, money to the Trevor Pod Project, Camp Ten Trees, to the Environmental Defense Fund, to, um, I can't list, I don't know them all off the top of my head, but various different charities. All right, become a patron. Do it. All right, welcome to the Patron Zone patrons. Thank you so much for being a patron. It really, really is appreciated. I really cannot tell you. When you become a patron, it means that I can spend less time at my other jobs and more time on deep dives like the Dependent Personality Store. And I have so many deep dives planned that I want to do. I want to do Paranoid Personality Disorder, Procrastination, and Defense Mechanisms. So watch out for those in the upcoming uh, weeks or months. Uh, actually, probably months because <laughs> in other episodes I said that right now it's actually a really busy time for me. But come August, I'm hoping that my life will become smooth sailing for deep dives. All right, patron Natasha from California, good old Natasha, writes in and says, I, I just finished the deep dive on dependent personality disorder, and great episode, as expected. And I fit the criteria perfectly. People that don't know me very well would be surprised by this since I am a veteran, and being a, bet, being a veteran is seen as a big thing. But I only joined the Navy because I was floundering in my life after separating from my ex-husband. My my ex-husband and I had a very parent-child dynamic, so the Navy filled that role for me after separating from him. Now that I'm about to get out of the Navy, I feel a constant dread of failure for what is to come. As per usual, I've been putting off important life things I know I need to do to succeed. I wish every day that someone would just help me with everything, and I feel very alone. But I'd never ask for help because I'm ashamed, and it would expose me as incompetent. Interestingly, the only people I'd say really recognize the childish aspects of me are people I've dated and co-workers. I get very angry about it when they notice this about me, but those who work closely with me see me as airheaded and not very dependable. It's very upsetting that I can't hide these things, that they all know what I try so hard to conceal. End of email. Well, first off, I'll tell you, Natasha, that you are very self-aware, which is wonderful. And I've known you a long time, and I've known you to be a very self-aware person. So kudos to you for that. You have that going for you, that wisdom and that insight will help. The other thing I'll say is I'm sorry that you're suffering from that. It is probably due to early childhood complications in parenting, and you have nothing to be ashamed about. It's completely normal. There are lots of people who have dependent qualities as a result of their early childhood parenting. It's, it's extremely normal, and you have nothing absolutely to be a, to be ashamed of. The things that... Now, some people say, well, of course, you're a therapist. You always say that because you're trying to be nice to people. No. What I'm here to tell you is that I absolutely believe that shame is a good thing. You should be ashamed of yourself if you run for government office and you proceed to just narcissistically 
you know, do everything for your own gain instead of actually trying to be a public servant and helping society. You absolutely should be ashamed of yourself if you participate in racist or sexist or ableist or classist behaviors when you know better. You should be ashamed if you rob a bank and shoot someone because you feel that you need money and and this sort of thing. Uh, These things are shameful acts. It is not shameful to go through difficulties growing up and have schemas that are reflective of that early experience. So uh, please, Natasha, do your best to not shame yourself and talk with your therapist, obviously, about all these things. So the schemas that that I talked about in the deep dive are, uh, there are five main schemas involved. Uh, Not everyone... Not everyone with dependent personality disorder has all these schemas, but the five schemas are, I am incompetent, the world is dangerous, I must stay close to my loved one or else, I must please others, and bad things will always happen. So with you, Natasha, you're talking about, you know, at least four of these, that you say that you're ashamed that you worry about being exposed as being incompetent. You believe that you are just inherently incompetent. That's where all of this dependent personality disorder comes from. You have this uh, maladaptive schema, this distortion of who you are, that you are incompetent. Now, you might have examples of, you know, situations in which you were incompetent, but we all do. And when you believe you're incompetent, then it's harder to be competent because you're often so much in your head that you will screw things up. Uh, I'll give you an example that I consider myself a pretty good driver. I have always tried to be good, a good defensive driver, a good um, driver that understands how to be safe and how to drive well, even if I'm driving fast, that kind of thing. I don't know why I took that on as a pride thing, but I have. I don't know if it's even true, but I, when I'm driving, I feel confident. I'm, things don't really scare me. But when I'm with someone in the car that is intimidating me, I drive worse. So when, I'm, when I feel intimidated, I actually make a lot more mistakes as a driver that I would never make if I was just driving by myself or with people that I trust. So if you're walking around in this constant state of I am incompetent, then it will screw up your cognitive processes such that you actually will act incompetent, not because you are incompetent, because you're, but because you're terrified of being revealed as incompetent. That's this self-fulfilling prophecy that the incompetent schema actually will perpetuate. So you have that schema, seemingly. You also seemingly have, and again, I can't diagnose you. You'd have to talk with your therapist about this, but based on what you're talking about here is... Another schema is the world is dangerous. I'm not quite sure if you have that one, but it sounds like perhaps. Another one you, you say here is that I must stay close to my loved ones or else. That's the schema. So let's go to your email and you say that you, uh, let's see, I wish every day that someone would just help me with everything. That is a very quintessential dependent personality person statement. I wish every day that someone would just help me with everything, and I feel very alone, you said. Uh, this is the, the everyday sentence that runs through the dependent person's mind. I, I can't do things on my own. I am incompetent. I wish that someone would just help me do everything. 
I wish that someone would just tell me what to do. What do I do? And you say that you had that dynamic with your ex-husband. I'm guessing that you're, you're from the, what you're saying is your husband was kind of like your dad and that you were a child to him. And of course, that doesn't usually work out very well for you. And that's, you know, I'm guessing partly, if not um, mostly why you separated from him. And then you decided, I'm going to go into the Navy. Well, you know, what better thing for a dependent person than going into the Navy? Because at least the perception is that the Navy will just tell you what to do at all times. You don't have to make any choices on your own. Now, the downside to these dynamics, you know, of, geez, I just wish. So the conscious mind is like, I wish someone would just tell me what to do. But the unconscious mind is, I don't want anyone to tell me what to do. I don't like being told what to do. So I don't hear that in your email, but that can be a part of it as well. The other schema here is often present independent personalities is I must please others. I must please others or else. I don't hear that in your email, so I'm not quite sure if that's present. The other schema that's often present is bad things always happen. And there's a tint of that in your in your email here that you're, you know, you're okay. You say, I feel I'm in a constant dread of failure. I feel a constant dread of failure for what is to come. That sounds to me like it's in the direction, if not actually there, the, the full schema of, I am sure bad things are ahead. And unless someone saves me from it, I'm doomed. It, you kind of have that, that schema as well, which again is likely a distortion, but a, Distortion that was developed during a very uh, important or during a relevant time in your life when bad things did happen and you needed to be hypervigilant about that when you were young. You also, So then let's also go into the six types of dependency that we go into in the deep dive. We talk about the separation anxiety dependent, the enmeshed dependent, the childlike dependent, the compliant and eager dependent, the life avoidant dependent, and the passive aggressive dependent. So what type do you exhibit uh, Natasha. Well, you mentioned, a num- and again, I'm just basing this off, off an email, but think one thing to consider if you're trying to get more insight into your type is the childlike dependent. You say that you had a parent-child dynamic with your ex-husband, that you, uh, you know, you say the only people that recognize my childish aspects are people that I've dated and co-workers. So uh, there's that. The other... Um, type that you might have. I'm not hearing any separation anxiety. I'm not hearing any enmeshment. I'm not hearing compliant and eager, and I'm not hearing passive aggressive, but we might be hearing life avoidant. So going into the, into the Navy might be an expression of life avoidance of I'm incompetent, so I just need to avoid all of life. I need to avoid careers. I need to avoid, you know, all that kind of stuff. I, I just can't do it because I am incompetent. So it sounds like maybe childlike and maybe life avoidant that, that you're talking about. But again, I, I can't know Natasha and you seem like a very self-aware person. So I'm sure you know more than I would. But again, hope that you get help for what you're going through. The key is, is that you talk with someone that understands dependent personality disorder, a therapist that understands that, that you work on those schemas and learn how to Uh, correct for them consciously, meaning you push back and you say, look, I feel like I'm incompetent, but actually I know that I'm not, that you have corrective experiences that teach you that you're not incompetent. 
it's interesting that being in the Navy would not have done that because you would think being in the Navy would provide a lot of opportunities for you to feel competent. And honestly, when I met you in person, Natasha, you seemed like a very competent person. <laughs> and I was actually very impressed uh, with all the knowledge that you had and all the things that you had done. So, it, But sometimes that doesn't help because if we see everything through our dependent, incompetent lens, we're like, well, that only happened because of these things. That's not really because of my inherent competence. It's just, you know, someone helped me with that or something like that. Anyway, let's go into another email. All right, this next email is from an anonymous patron. They write, I've been listening to your dependent personality disorder deep dives and have been surprised with how much I can relate to the feelings you've described, yet I've never heard of dependent personality disorder before. I often have described myself as codependent, which I now understand is not the correct use of the word. I have been in therapy for a year and a half now where we work through these issues. However, I find that my trait of relying too much on my therapist for answers and solutions and my constant stubbornness to be an issue during counseling as we often go in circles. I am aware I do this, but I haven't been able to break this cycle, which is very frustrating. I often describe it as wanting approval from the enemy. I was wondering if there is anything I can do to break this cycle of relying too much on my therapist yet being stubborn at the same time. Or more generally, what is the recommended treatment for becoming more dependent? End of email. Yeah, okay, so let's review what you're saying here, Anonymous Patron. You're saying that you've often described yourself as codependent, which is the layperson term for dependent, overly dependent. Well, it actually can, it's actually, the word codependent is used in a variety of fashions, but usually people are referring to people being too dependent on others, too too much of a people pleaser, okay, and or too needy or something. Anyway, so you say that you rely very much on your therapist for answers and solutions and that you are constantly stubborn at the same time and you go in circles and you describe it as wanting approval from the enemy. Well, as with Natasha, I will say, anonymous patron, you're very self-aware and that is good. That is a huge part of the success of your therapy is knowing, hmm, I really overly rely on my therapist for answers and solutions, and yet I'm also stubborn against their answers and solutions for me. So this is a extremely common transference, counter-transference dynamic between the dependent client and the therapist. It is very tempting for a therapist to treat dependent people and not know that the client is dependent. Because the dependent client comes to the therapist and is like, oh my God, I don't know what to do. I've been waiting so long for just someone to help me. I, you know, And so the therapist feels very good about themselves because the therapist is like, this person really wants to talk to me and I feel, I feel needed. You know, therapists want to feel needed. They want to feel that they're, you know, helpful. And dependent people are very good at making people feel helpful. Because dependent people really need, they feel they need a lot of help. So they they become very good at soliciting help from other people and they be, they get very good at getting others to to help them and getting others to feel a lot of self-esteem from helping them. And their dependent people tend to be very good at sniffing out people who like to tell people what to do. Dominant people, even abusive people like to tell people what to do. And 
uh, the problem is, is that the dependent person, not always, but usually has this stubbornness that you're talking about, which is a result of what I was talking about earlier. So we go back to early childhood, and I don't know about you, anonymous patron, but I've treated a lot of people with dependent personality, and uh, usually on the passive-aggressive side. They will have been raised in a situation where they had a dominant, overbearing parent or controlling parent or something, and the parent would suppress the child's ability to express anger. And what the child did, as I was saying earlier, they will learn to hide their expressions of anger because everyone needs to be able to express their anger somehow. And uh, But at the same time, the child... So the child has two main schemas. One is, is that I don't know what I'm doing and I must get someone to tell me what to do because I am incompetent. But I also am extremely resentful of people telling me what to do because people are always telling me what to do and no one lets me make my own choices. And so I hate it when people tell me what to do. So the therapist is caught between a rock and a hard place because the client is desperately asking the therapist, the client's desperately telling the therapist, tell me what to do. Oh my God. I don't, or, or they're very good at soliciting that. And then the therapist gets sucked into that if they aren't aware of the countertransference or they're not aware of dependent personality disorder, which a lot of therapists are not. And the therapist will just engage in like, well, I think you should do this. I think you should do that. And then the, the client will act on the surface like they're receptive to that. But underneath it all, they are extremely angry that the therapist is telling them what to do, even though the client socialized the therapist into telling them what to do. But of course, as I always say, People come to therapy because they have problems, not because everything is going well. <laughs> and so when you have dependent, and one of the problems that people come into therapy with, whether they know they have it or not, is dependent personality. And I love this, this phrase that you have where it says, wanting approval from the enemy. It's a very, very wonderful phrase. So the advice I have is, of course, keep going to therapy and talk about this tension. Say to your therapist, you know, I have this desperation for you to tell me what to do. But at the same time, I am I feel this internal stubbornness against you telling me what to do. This is passive aggression and it is dependent personality disorder uh, in a nutshell. Not everyone has this dynamic, but it, it is one of the common dynamics for this. So let's look at the schemas as we talked about before. Well, it seems like you might be a candidate for four of them. One is, is I am incompetent. So remember that schema, you are relying on your therapist for answers and solutions, possibly because you have a schema that you can't do things on your own. The other schema is the world is dangerous and thus you need to rely on your therapist for answers and solutions because you believe that, uh, you're incompetent and the world is inherently unsafe. The other schema is I must stay close to my loved ones or else. So it sounds like you have that as well. This is an enmeshment type, right? Where I need to be very close to my therapist and they need to tell me what to do or else. And the other is I must please others. That's a schema that isn't always present with dependent personality, but it often is. And it's, I don't know, you didn't really mention this that much, but the codependent is often associated with um, subjugation and also when you have the transference of asking your therapist what to do, sometimes it can be 
you know, laced with this idea of like, I'm trying to please my therapist by um, making them feel useful, that kind of thing. So, and you're talking about how you're going in circles. And, uh, and so this is the circle that dependent personality people go through, not only in therapy, but in their, in all their relationships. So they meet someone and they sniff out someone who is very uh, sure of themselves seemingly or dominant and likes to tell people what to do. And they fit very well with that person, uh, someone that comes across like a parent. And then the dependent person, so they marry this person, and the dependent person is like, tell me what to do, tell me what to do. I don't know how to do things. I don't know how to get a job. I don't know how to mow the lawn. I don't know how to fix the TV. I don't know how to cook dinner, really. I don't know how to talk to my parents. Tell me what to do. But at the same time, the dependent person since they were a child has been desperately wanting someone to just let them do their things on their own. And the, the relationship will go in circles because the dependent person is like, tell me what to do. The dominant person tells them what to do. And the dependent person uh, is rebelling against that sometimes passively, uh, meaning that the other individual doesn't even know you're rebelling against it. So the types that you seem to be talking about, are compliant and eager, possibly that type of dependent where you are compliant and eager towards your therapist. Not quite sure. I couldn't really tell if that was, you know, going on, but you would want to talk with your therapist about that. And then, of course, the passive aggressive type, which is the type that is internally stubborn or internally angry and not overtly angry. So, so you're asking like, well, how do I get out of this? Well, you want to create a dynamic with your therapist in which you're able to gain competence on your own without your therapist telling you what to do. And you are also able to express your anger in a upfront way rather than a hidden way. Stubbornness is a passive aggression. Telling someone, I'm sorry, I don't want to do that for the following reasons is just saying your preferences. Stubbornness is usually uh, done because you're holding a grudge, right? And that is a hidden expression or a stuffed aggression that is building up over time. Also, the enmeshed type seems to possibly be present here in that you talk about being codependent and relying too much. And so sometimes that can be typified by enmeshment and possibly separation anxiety type of dependent. Um, I'm not quite sure, but it sounds like you might want to look into that as well. So again, you want to talk with your therapist about it. Say, I think I have dependent personality disorder, at least some traits, and I rely a lot on you. And what the therapist should do, so you therapists out there, if you're in this situation, which I know you have been, because every therapist, you know, by a certain point has had a client like this where they feel like, I feel like I'm very useful to this client. And I feel like the client asks me a lot of really direct questions like, what, what am I supposed to do here? And then, you know, I will throw some stuff out there and then they just never do it. <laughs> they, and I get frustrated that they just never follow my wonderful advice that they seem to be asking for me. I don't, this client is being very resistant when in fact the therapist is just buying into the countertransference and just essentially acting like, the controlling parent, but in a therapeutic manner. It's, it's, or a ther there's a therapeutic veil over this controlling aspect. You know, if you're a therapist and you're essentially in this mode of 
telling your client what to do and, and believing that your client is incompetent, even though they're 35 years old and very likely competent, then you are uh, being sucked into that countertransference and, and that reenactment and becoming basically an abusive, controlling parent. And so the trick is, is that you have to resist that. And in a nutshell, it's very complicated, but one of the principles to follow is you have to convince yourself, this is an adult. This is a 35-year-old person who is capable. And you might want to look for examples of where they are capable in their life and say, well, if they're capable of X, Y, and Z, then they must also be potentially capable for A, B, and C, you know? If they're capable to come to therapy and pay their bill on time and, you know, they're really good at crafts at home, you know, they make their own cards, they're able to plan that all out, then they clearly have the intelligence and the brain power to figure out what career they want. I mean, you know, it, or at least know where to start, right? Instead of just believing, because that's the seduction from the dependent client is that they will seduce you as a therapist into believing that they just, they are incompetent inherently, and you have to resist that essentially. And then the other thing is that you want to resist telling them what to do, even though they're explicitly asking for it, or they will suck you into thinking it's a good idea to tell them what to do. So you have to resist that with all of your might. You just have to say, Okay, there, and, and, and you want to have questions like, okay, so I hear you asking for advice from me. Uh, well, you know, let's, let's take a second and let's just explore what you think I might say, or let's explore what options you have. So what options are available to you? Now the client might say, well, I don't know what the options are. That's why I'm here in therapy. And you'd be like, okay, well, I think a part of your therapy is someone actually believing in you and giving you the space to explore the options for yourself. And I certainly will help you with that. And I'm here with you, but it's, I think, important for you to have this space to explore this on your own instead of everyone always telling you what to do. Dependent people will often appreciate that greatly, even though on the surface they're asking, please tell me what to do. If you, you know, there's, there's usually two things that will happen to them in their life. One is, is that people will tell them what to do, which is what they actually don't want, even though they're seducing the other person to tell them what to do. Um, or the person will say, you're, you're just a child, and they will reject them. So they generally get those two re reactions, either stepping in in control or rejection. But you don't do either of those as a therapist. You stay in contact, and you believe in them, and you love them, and you you know, respect them, but you don't tell them what to do. You don't reject them and you don't tell them what to do. And in that space, the client learns how to do things on their own, that they can be close to someone without that person telling them what to do. And that, that as you, as you are nearby watching them, and that's a, you know, part of the print, the, as you're parenting, reparenting them, you're doing what, uh, they should have gone through when they were young. So when a seven-year-old uh, brings home some homework, for example, I have this project I have to work on. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do these things. It's too big. I don't know what it, it's, it's. It's a whole page of instructions, and I don't know what to do. And you as a parent, you say, okay, 
Well, I, I'm being, you know, in your head, you're like, I'm being seduced to take over and do this for him. Um, I know why he's scared because he's seven and this is the first time he's done this sort of thing, but I know he's capable or at the very least, I know that he's capable of trying and maybe he makes some mistakes, but who cares? And that's a big part of parenting. It's like that, uh, to not raise dependent children, you have to be able to tolerate letting your child make mistakes and make, make a fool out of themselves sometimes because everyone makes a fool out of themselves and Every child needs to learn, huh, that's what it feels like to make a fool out of myself. Hmm, not good, but not, you know, it's not the end of the world. (laughs) You know, to protect your child from everything is to deny them the opportunity to gain the competence to deal with it. So anyway, so you're, you're parenting your child in a healthy way and you're like, okay, so honey, I see that you're really worried about being able to do this. Um, You're, I will help you but I'm not going to do it for you because I know you can do it and you will feel better about yourself if you do this on your own, but not completely on your own because I'm here to help. So let's look at your assignment and you just read the assignment with the child. You say, okay, you need to do step one. You need to find your, you need to identify your favorite animal. So honey, what is your favorite animal? The kid says, I don't know what my favorite animal is. I don't, I don't know how to do this. And the compulsion as the parent is to say, well, I think tigers are your favorite animal. Okay, but you want to resist that because that's stepping in. And you say, okay, I hear you. You're, you're scared. You're upset. Take a deep breath. I know you can do it. And just think, you know, just think what among all the animals that you like, what's the number one? What's the number one animal or what could be in your top five animals? You know, think about it for a second. I know you can do it. And you don't suggest the animal. And the kid says, well, I guess I like tigers. Yeah, okay, you did it. Look at that. I, I didn't help you. You just did that on your own. Okay. When you do that to a child when they're 0 through 10, then they don't develop dependent personality disorder. When you don't do that for a child 0, zero, zero through 10, then they do sometimes. And they're 35 and you're, they're sitting, or they're 55 and they're sitting in your office. And that's what you have to do to them. You have to, they come to you and they're just like, I don't know what to do. I don't, I'm just, I'm just completely out of my element. And you just say, okay, so I'm with you and we're going to walk through this. Let's start from the beginning. What are your options? And the client says, I don't know what my options are. That's why I'm here. You're the doctor. You tell me. And you say, okay, I get it. You're, you're scared. You feel like you can't do this. But you know what? I believe in you. I believe you can figure this out. And let's take, a, let's take our time. Let's take our time. So let's brainstorm. Uh, you, know, what, you know, what's one option available to you? Well, I don't know. I guess I could just do this. You know, this is an option. You'd be good. Okay, good. Look at that. You came up with an option. You did it all on your own. And you're good at this. Okay. Rinse and repeat that, rinse and repeat that over and over and over again in various different avenues that the client brings up. And slowly over time, the client learns, huh, I can be close to someone without them telling me what to do. I can um, be close to someone and brainstorm about things and they won't reject me. He, you know, my, my therapist believes in me. Because I I love my therapist and I really respect my therapist. And my therapist repeatedly tells me that I'm capable. Hmm. That, you know, it's starting to get under my skin that I believe that I'm capable. 
The other part of it as a therapist you need to do is you need to help the client exhibit anger outwardly in a non-passive hidden way, in an overt, you know, visible way by just flat out asking your clients about anger. You, you really need to make anger a big part of the therapy. And if you're the sort of therapist I am, then you ask them to express their anger towards you. What are you, are you angry at me? How are you angry at me? And you want to have that to, you know, a, an important part of it. So I don't know if that explains or answers your question, anonymous patron, but let's go on to another email about dependent personality. All right, this next email is from patron Janine from Sydney, Australia. She writes, I have a 20-year-old son who is extremely dependent. He makes almost no choices or decisions by for himself. He makes almost no choices or decisions for himself. What he eats, what he wears, what he does, he does not make those decisions for himself. He even prefers to rely on me to shave his beard. He has a diagnosis of autism spectrum and generalized anxiety, but after listening to your avoidant personality disorder deep dive, this description seems to fit him better. Now that I have heard this deep dive, I can see this is a comorbid condition for him. He refuses to engage in psychology because all therapists tend to apply the CBT angle and he loathes CBT. How can I support my son to grow through this? End of email. Yeah, so this is an email not about dependent personality, but it is about avoidant personality, which is sometimes um, it's similar uh, to dependent personality disorder. People with avoidant personality disorder can look like they have dependent, and you can have both, by the way. And people with avoidant personality disorder and dependent personality disorder will often be misdiagnosed with autism spectrum and generalized anxiety. Now, you can have all four of those. You can have autism, generalized anxiety, avoidant personality disorder, and dependent personality disorder. Absolutely. And I've actually seen that before. But it's tempting to... So let me explain. Uh, So I've talked about dependent personality disorder in this episode, but avoidant, to remind everyone, is a schema of uh, not that I'm incompetent necessarily, but that there's something just deeply wrong with me that everyone notices. It is a extreme version of social anxiety, essentially. And it's this idea that, um, you know, like, uh, how do I describe it really quickly? So I think all of us can imagine, say, you get invited to a party and you you only know one, you only know the the, the host. So your friend's kind of with someone at work and they're like, hey, come to a party. And you're by yourself, you show up and there's like 30 people there and they all know each other, and you walk in, and you don't know anyone, okay? And you're sitting there, and you don't know what to do with your hands, and you're trying to, you know, start up a conversation, kind of, or maybe you're trying to blend into the wall, and you start to fixate on everything that could be wrong with you. You start thinking, oh, I dressed kind of wrong for this party, or I'm not as pretty as everyone else here, or I'm not into the same things that they are, or the way that I drink my drink, it's not, you know, it's, it's embarrassing. I'm not, I'm not as cool as every, you know, I think all of us can relate to that, right? I mean, it's, I certainly can. <laughs> and, uh, the, I think the last time that happened to me was, was pretty a long time ago. It happened to me a lot when I was young, but as I get older, I just become more confident, I suppose. But um, the last time it happened, I went to a party uh, of my wife's friends, a group of friends I hadn't met 
yet, or I didn't know them very well. And I remember just really focusing on like, you know, because when you're rejected, you just start looking for reasons why you're being rejected. Anyway, <laughs> when you feel rejected. Um, so anyway, we, I think we can all relate to that. Okay. If you have avoidant personality disorder, then you have that in spades and you will believe that in every situation, whether you're in class or at work or at the grocery store or at the movie theater, that everyone knows that you're the dumb one or the nerd or the unsophisticated one or the, you know, something's deeply wrong with you and no one wants to hang out with you and everyone's laughing at you and it's, it's terrifying. It's just, it feels like that feeling when you're standing at a party and you don't know anyone and you're just in the corner and every, every second that passes by, you just want to leave. Well, people with avoidant personality sort of feel that way, even when they're just sitting in a room by themselves. That's, that's kind of an oversimplification, but that is one way of putting it. And so people with that schema will avoid. That's why we call it, that's why they call it avoidant personality story. I, I wish they didn't call it avoidant personality story. I wish they called it like um, defective schema disorder or something. But of course the DSM doesn't concern itself with schemas. But anyway, so that's avoidant personality disorder in a nutshell. Um, dependent personality disorder is the notion that one is incompetent. And this person can also avoid life because they're like, well, I might as well not leave the house because I'm just going to screw things up. Or I might as well not get a job or I might as well not move out of my parents' house because I will screw it up. I always screw things up. I can't do things on my own. I need this, you know, I need my mom to tell me everything to do. And so, you know, I, I need, like you're saying, Janine, your son does, you know, he needs you to make decisions for him on what to eat, what to wear, what he does. He even relies on you to shave his beard. So is this avoidant personality disorder? Is it dependent personality disorder? Is it autism spectrum? Or is it generalized anxiety? Or is it something else? Well, I don't know, of course, but let's just kind of rattle through some possibilities. It, it could definitely be dependent personality disorder in that he doesn't, if he has a schema of incompetence and, and a schema of enmeshment uh, or, and, and or separation anxiety, but essentially the enmeshment schema is I must stay close to my mom. I must, uh, I must have her do everything for me or else something really, really horrible is going to happen. Usually the deep down core belief is I'm going to screw things up and then, and then I'm going to be rejected or I'm going to be harmed. And you know, something is really, something really scary is going to happen. If, if my mom doesn't shave my beard, if my mom doesn't um, tell me what to wear. And I can't make those decisions on my own. Okay, so that's a very dependent personality disorder uh, conceptualization. Avoidant personality disordered people will also sometimes engage in these kinds of things because, you know, where they say, tell me what to eat, tell me what to wear, tell me what to do, because they believe they're, there's something wrong with them, and they just believe they, they can't, uh, it's just better to have someone else tell them what to do. Dependent people are more enmeshed. So what you want to think, Janine, is do I feel like my son is is really enmeshing with me, like like they never want to leave my side? Or is my 20-year-old just terrified of the outside world and by default they're by my side? So that's kind of in a nutshell the difference between those two disorders. Autism spectrum 
can look like this as well because the person will have difficulty making decisions because they're it's hard for it's for some people with autism it's harder for them to learn things it's also you know given the way that their brain works and also if you have autism spectrum often kids are bullied or shamed and so they end up thinking there's something wrong with them so they don't so they will just default like well I I clearly am incompetent I need someone to tell me what to do when in fact actually they just process the world differently and if they got help for that they could actually do things quite well for themselves so that's that. And then there's generalized anxiety where the person is just terrified all the time and they don't have the, the brain capacity to decide what to wear and, you know, to shave and this kind of thing. Or even OCD. You, If you had OCD, you might think, I am, you know, obsessed or, uh, you know, I have this intrusive thought that if I shave myself, I'm going to kill myself on accident. So can someone else please shave me for me? You know? So there's a lot of different possibilities there. And, you know, I don't know. But you ask... How can I support my son to grow through this? Well, therapy. I mean, I, I know that that probably isn't the best answer, but it's really hard for a mom to help a, a child who has a personality disorder who's 20, particularly 20 years old. 20-year-old kids have a very, and younger, have a very hard time admitting that there's something wrong with them. It is almost impossible for them to say, um, I think I might have an issue now, I know some of you out there listening are 20 years old and absolutely can do that, but 90% of 20-year-olds are, are who have an issue. It's really hard. You know, it's hard for anyone, but again, particularly for younger people because their ego isn't strong enough. So, and or, or they don't have experience or they still have this kind of fantasy that they can do everything on their own or I don't know. Anyway, so what do you do? Uh, you know, I... It, it, it's hard to know that the, one of the best things you can do, Janine, is go to a therapist that understands all the disorders that we've talked about and get a lot of therapy on how to parent a child like this. I, as a family therapist, have done a lot of work. You know, the parents will come to me and they'll drag their 20-year-old son into therapy and I'll try to work with the family and I'll try to work with the 20-year-old kid. And the 20-year-old kid will just be pushing back all the time. And, I, and at some point I'll sit down with the parents and I'll say, your kid is not participating in therapy and we're just wasting our time. But as a, as a, you know, possible other option that isn't as ideal as if the 20 year old participated meaningfully is that you, the parents come in and we talk about how you can have the best approach to this child. And sometimes, and again, Jeannie, you'd want to talk to a family therapist about this, but sometimes if you do have someone with avoidant or dependent personality disorder, the, uh, trick is to slowly do what a therapist would do to the child, which is to help the child feel that they are either, you know, competent if they have dependent problems or that there isn't really anything wrong with them. And no one, no one notices their, whatever they're obsessed about, no one can tell, um, you know, with avoidant personality disorder, or if they have autism spectrum, then, you know, learning how to navigate their difference, their neuro difference in a way that is helpful. So there's a lot of stuff you can do as a parent along those lines. Now, will the kid uh, participate in that, you know, therapy or in parents trying to help their children? Uh, you know, that's variable. And there's this notion out there that if you have a kid that has these kind of problems, that there is this answer. And yeah, there are things you can do, but none of it will work if the child doesn't participate in at least some of it. If your child refuses to play along, there is 
almost nothing you can do. And I've been there. I have been there with clients where we work. I work hard to get the kid to talk with me. I, I work hard to help the, and I, you know, I, I'd like to think I'm pretty good at being diplomatic and, you know, not coming down hard on people and, and moving slow and speaking in a way that doesn't stigmatize. And, and a lot of that is because I had a lot of conversations with young people who did not want to be in therapy. <laughs> it was not the best time of my career, honestly, but, uh, but you learn how to phrase things so that people can hear them. And you learn how to act not like a therapist, essentially, so that they uh, don't, you know, they're not in this constant reminder that they're in a shrink's office. But, um, and, you know, I did a lot of things and I did a lot of things with parents to try to uh, help them help their child. And sometimes the kid just refuses to to participate. And it's just like, you know, what do you do? Uh, and sometimes it's almost like working with an addict at some point for some parents, you know, you have, say you have a 25 year old son who is an alcoholic. And as a parent, you keep trying to help your son stop drinking and he keeps resisting and he keeps drinking. And and you just watch, you're just watching your, your 25 year old son drink himself into an early grave. Well, what are you supposed to do? Any respectable, loving parent would do everything they could, right? They would, they would fight with their kid. They would try to get their kid help. They would um, love their child. They would be there for them. They would cry and say, you're hurting me, son. I wish you got, got help. You would do all the things, but if nothing works, then what are you supposed to do? Well, one of the things that experts will say, and a lot of people who've been through this, is you have to distance yourself. You just have to say, I've done all that I can, and I'm going down with him, and I love my 20, I love my son, but I've done everything and he's dragging me and everyone around us down with him and I'm not doing him any good because I kind of feel like my efforts are just aggravating him or keeping him in this childish position because I'm still his, I'm still mothering him and, and he's 25 and it's not all, it's not a good answer. It's the lesser of several evils, but sometimes parents will say, after a lot of talking, going to Al-Anon, this kind of thing, they'll say, "I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna move on." I mean, and if you, I'll offer him help, and if he, if he, you know, I'll say, "Hey, son, would you like my help with your alcoholism?" And if he says no, then I'm just not gonna bother anymore, and it's gonna break my heart because I feel like I am, I have to uh, give up on my son. I feel like I'm just walking away from my parenting responsibilities. I've been, I have been there, my friend. I have been there with clients. I've been there in my personal life. And sometimes, again, it's not a good answer, but it's the best of, it's the worst of several evils. Because the the more intense evil is to stay involved and keep the 25-year-old like an infant, treat them like an infant, and drag yourself down in the process, aggravate your relationship with your 25-year-old because you're constantly on their back about things. And it's similar if your child has one of these personality disorders and they're refusing to get help. At some point, you just have to say, well, uh, I've done a lot. In fact, I think I've done everything. And I'll continue to try a little bit here and there. But unless he... 
you know, responds or at least tries something, then why should I be beating my head up against the wall every day? And, and it breaks my heart as a parent to watch that happen. But, and I kind of even know where it comes from because, you know, I, I was struggling as a young parent or my ex wife was kind of a, an abusive person. And, you know, so you can you can even see why you can empathize with that, but at some point, sometimes you know, and I've been again, it's not an easy answer, and I'm not saying that's what you're supposed to do, Janine, but I'm just saying that talking with a therapist about that might be good. All right, this next email is from anonymous patron. They write in part two of the dependent personality disorder deep dive, all the parenting models that you talked about that create a dependent type of person, all the parents are overly involved. In your experience, is this always the case? I very much exhibit dependency, but my mom, she was single, was very distant, and I constantly wanted her to be more interested in me and my daily life. I literally have a memory of her telling me she wasn't interested in something I was telling her about. This lasted into my teen years, and I deeply resented her for criticizing me for my shortcomings, but rarely helping me. With bigger things, too, like learning how to drive or applying for colleges, she wouldn't help me. When I was 12, she went on a cruise for a week without making sure anyone would come over to check on my brother and me. She just left us there alone. I met my ex-husband when I was 17, and I latched onto him immediately because he just seemed to know everything and took care of me. As always, thanks for reading. Um, Yeah, so this is interesting, and it's something that I did not talk about in the deep dive, so I'm so glad that you wrote in because it helps me to actually clarify something that I didn't talk about, which is this other type of parenting that can result in dependent people. So yeah, in the deep dive, I went, I talked about the typical ways in which dependent people are created, which is overprotective, over-involved, and, over con- and or over-controlling parents. So if you have a overprotective parent, then the, the parent is really anxious, about the outside world and won't let the child make their own decisions on their own, won't let the child take any risks, won't let the child do things that are age-appropriate so that they can learn to spread their wings, and the child sort of learns that the world is unsafe and that they can't do things on their own and they don't, they don't know how to do things on their own. The other type of parenting is over-involvement. This is enmeshment, basically. The parent doesn't let the child think on their own or do things on their own. The other is over-controlling, so the parent will not, uh, you know, through controlling, will not let the child do things on their own. These these kids tend to be more passive-aggressive than others. Now, there's a lot of bulldozing this kind of parent. But the one kind of parenting that I did not talk about, but I'm so glad that you bring up, is what I'll say over-neglecting parents. So in some rare c- cases, neglectful parents can produce dependent children. Now, from my previous deep dives on narcissism and avoidant attachment, you know, you know that, de- that neglected children usually become overly dependent, overly independent, sorry. So over ne- when you neglect a child, they usually decide, oh, I need to be independent. I need to do things on my own because no one's going to help me. But some people will actually swing the other way because they're in this space throughout their life desperately wanting someone to tell them what to do, desperately wanting someone to hold them and to guide them. And they never give up hope, you know. So so let me back up. You're, you're a year 
old and you're being neglected and you uh, are still probably in that zone of like, I want my mommy to notice me. I want my daddy to be there for me. And you're 12 months old and you're still reaching out. You're still hopeful. You're still like, please, you know, please be there for me. Notice me. Uh, tell me what to do. You know, protect me from the world. And, uh, but if the neglect continues to happen, then the child by 18 months, you know, 24 months, will have already made the choice that, oh, I give up because this isn't working. So I need to, I need to figure out something else. And so I'm just going to turn off my attachment needs or I'm going to deny them and I'm going to do things on my own. Well, some kids at 18 months, 12, 24 months will actually decide, no, I'm not going to give up. I'm going to keep reaching out. I'm going to keep desperately, you know, signaling, please take care of me. Please notice me. Please tell me what to do. Please show up for me. And those people will not become pathologically independent, but they will become pathologically de dependent. And then as soon as they meet someone, like you mentioned, uh, you know, a partner usually, uh, then who who can tell them what to do, then they will latch on to them and enmesh with them. So it's, it's a it's a rare presentation, but it does happen. And uh, absolutely. So, you know, thanks for bringing that up. All right. This next email is also from patient, patron Natasha from California. She writes, can you heal through parenting? My therapist taught me to imagine righting the wrongs in my childhood as an avenue to healing or just talking to my child self. When my daughter was a baby, I had this elation all the time that I was doing what I wished my mom had done. Are these essentially the same thing? End of email. Yeah, I'm, so I'm not exactly sure what you're asking, Natasha, but I, I think I understand. And I think what you're asking is, can, you know, if one has dependent personality and has all the schemas and all the, all the traumas associated with that, can one heal one's dependency over dependency by uh, parenting in a way that you wished you were parented? And the answer is yes. So, so let's say that you had, well, let's go with the previous email. It's, you know, you had a parent who was neglecting and you developed a dependency type that was, you know, all from, you know, adopted, the personalities adopted at an early age of, please take care of me, please take care of me, please take care of me. And I can't do things on my own because, you know, the world is scary. And then when you have your own kids and you have this dependency problem, and instead of neglecting your kid, you're actually there for your kid. You're loving them. You're understanding them. You're letting them do things on their own. And you're not teaching them that the world is a dangerous place. You're, you're teaching them. You're not really concerning them. You're saying, I will protect you from the outside world. And one day, you will know how to navigate the outside world, that kind of thing. Um, and as you are doing that, you can heal from your own traumas because we inject part of our own personality into our children as we parent them. So you can have a corrective experience where you are the parent and your inner child is your child and you are internalizing that relationship and healing. Absolutely. I hope that makes sense, right? <laughs> All right. 
Um, actually, I have some time for another email that's unrelated to dependency. So let's do that. Anonymous patron writes in and says, what happens if a cop, a police officer, is diagnosed with PTSD? A friend of mine was severely abused as a child and is looking for a therapist to help him work through that abuse. However, he is a police officer and believes that if a medical professional diagnoses him with PTSD, his department will find out and he will be removed from active duty. Is this true? If you were if you were counseling a police officer and you determined that they had PTSD, would you do anything different than you would if they were a teacher, a welder, etc.? What do you think of the ethics of this situation either way? If it's true, it makes me angry because it seems it would discourage a whole profession of people who are exceptionally susceptible to on-the-job trauma from seeking help. This seems completely counterproductive. End of email. Yes, 100%. So I don't know the prevalence of this attitude or this policy in different police districts or precincts or departments, but uh, I do know of it. And there are similar things in the airline industry, in the military, even in uh, if you're working as an engineer for a business that works for the military. You know, say you work at Boeing and, uh, you know, the airplane business and you are working in uh, the defense, you know, the, the fighter jet wing, if you will, of Boeing, then there are similar policies that if you qualify for anything in the DSM, you are fired or, you know, FBI agents, I think, sometimes have this policy as well. And it's completely, completely stupid, as you point out, not a speech and very counterproductive. Something like 50 plus percent of humans will have something, will qualify for something in the DSM at some point in their life. So it's much more normal. And plus, just to like, you know, this notion that if you're a police officer and you suffer from PTSD, that you can't do your job, like, and you're getting treatment for it. <laughs> it's just like, uh, so let's, let's just uh, imagine that if this, you know, this policy reflected reality, then then you would say, well, all of our police officers have nothing. So how many of us believe that all the police officers that are that are working today don't qualify for anything in the DSM? <laughs> or every airline pilot who's flying a plane is completely fine and there's they, they're not suffering from any depression, any anxiety, any substance abuse, any PTSD, any personality disorder, any adjustment disorder. They, you know, they don't have, they don't have anything. That's just ridiculous. And the notion that if they do, somehow it means they can't do their job. It's this, it's stigma, and it's this, um, you know, they will conflate uh, a diagnosis with being crazy and being out of, yeah, you can have, for example, schizophrenia and be in a delusional psychotic state and believe that the aliens are trying to invade your brain and that, you know, Obama is living next door and, and reading your thoughts. And yes, that would impair your possibly your ability to be a police officer. Not always. Actually, there are plenty of people who have hallucinations and psychotic episodes, and they've gone through a lot of work and a lot of therapy. And even with medication, they still experience this, or this, the medication is, has too many side effects, and so they learn how to live with. So even with psychosis, you can still do a good job, but we could imagine that if one is in the throes of a psychotic episode, episode that it might make it hard for them to uh, you know, do their duty uh, as a police officer or as a airline pilot or as a FBI agent or as a military person. Okay, sure. But that's just a small sliver of the pie when it comes to the diagnoses in the DSM. 
PTSD is, is on its face not an indication that you can't be a good police officer. Plus, you can be traumatized on the job <laughs> because of being a police officer. You can be traumatized and then suffer from PTSD and then you were removed from duty. Like, doesn't make any sense. Now, maybe you need to sit down with the provider and say, okay, does the mental health clinician believe that this individual is impaired because of their PTSD? You can certainly have a conversation of that, like that. Or what do we need to do as a employer to help this person recover so that they can come back and work at their full capacity or do they need anything? You know, there should certainly you could collaborate, but just like this stigmatizing, if you qualify for any diagnosis, you're out is a result of our stupid society. And and this is what we, you know, we caught, we talk about systemic racism. Well, this is systemic stigma against people with mental disorders or even just with any kind of regular mental condition, <laughs> you know, like the notion of, your child dies and you're in utter grief for two years and no one at work is willing to have a conversation with you about maybe the fact that you need a little bit of a break, a little bit more leeway, a little bit more slack in your job while you suffer from the severe, you know, grief issues as a result, as a result of your child dying. We don't want to talk about that. We just want to sweep it under the rug and say either we'll just get rid of them or, you know, something along, along those lines. It's, it's, this is systemic oppression against people with any mental condition outside of, you know, uh, anyway, I, you get my point. So now you ask me, and I'm an anonymous patron, what I would do. Well, there are many different things one can do. If I'm in, I'm in, I've been in private practice my whole career. And so uh, if someone came to me in my private practice, I also, I've also worked in agencies as well, but if someone came to me in private practice and hired me and just paid out of pocket, we wouldn't be using insurance or anything like that. And they said, look, I think I have PTSD, but I'm a police officer. And if you report I have PTSD to my employer, they will fire me or something like that. So I want to get treatment for PTSD, but I don't want you to tell anyone that I have PTSD. Then I would say, okay, 100%. I mean, unless something really weird happens and we might roll through those very strange circumstances, uh, I will not tell anyone that you have PTSD. I will not, even if your employer calls me, I will tell them I can't tell you anything. I, don't, I can't even tell you I know that person. So don't call here anymore. So unless, now there are circumstances or like subpoenas and other kinds of things that could happen. They're rare though. And there are, are ways to fight that as well. But and I've done that before. I've actually had people in this situation, this very situation, uh, from various different professions that have this kind of uh, culture. And I have told them, uh, "Here's how we can avoid you, this information being, um, you know, public or, or made public to your made, made known to your employer. There are definite ways we can do that. Your employer has no right over your medical." uh, records, <laughs> you know, you, you have rights as a client for, of confidentiality and, and yeah, so that's what I would do. All right, let's read another email, but first let me do an announcement that, uh, that I've been telling everyone that we have a scholarship that is running right now and not a lot of people have applied for it. So it's a $2,000 scholarship. The deadline is June 15th. So if you know anyone in a master's program or a doctoral program in psychology or psychotherapy, marriage and family therapy, social work, this kind of thing, then encourage them to apply because uh, there's a pretty good chance that they will get it. So $2,000 scholarship. We're going to announce the winner during our 13-hour, 13th anniversary. That's another date you might want to put in your calendar is August 7th. 
in 2021, Saturday, we are going to be on, me and Berto are going to be on YouTube live from 10 in the morning until 11 p.m. at night. So join us for the 13-hour live stream, and we'll, during that time, we will announce the winner of the scholarship. The other thing that I've been saying this week that I want to just tell everyone is that my life for the next couple of months is going to be extremely busy for a lot of personal reasons. It's nothing terrible. It's all kind of good, but there's a lot of very thing, a lot of busy things that I have to do. But after that time, I should have a lot more time. But during the busy time, I'm going to be doing a lot of these kind of email episodes because these are easy for me to do. I don't have to do a lot of prep usually. And and some of you don't like these episodes for that reason. You're like, I don't like those email episodes because of, you know, that reason. And I get it. And my, you know, I, if I had it my way, I would do deep dives all day long because I just love doing that. And, you know, and you like listening to it. So we both win. <laughs> but, but after this busy time of the next couple of months, I'll have more time. I, I have a lot of things on my list that I want to do deep dives on. And, I, and I'm really looking forward to the months of like August, September and beyond to be able to do these things. I want to do paranoid personality disorder. I want to do a deep dive on procrastination. <laughs> so a little side note on this. For some reason, I got it in my head that I already did an episode on procrastination. <laughs> and I would be on YouTube live you know, Q and A or something. And I would tell everyone, uh, yeah, go, you know, go to the website, you know, search for my episode on procrastination. You'll be able to listen to it. And then Stacy, the pod wife would say, uh, Kirk, you haven't done an episode on procrastination. I'd be like, Oh, I haven't. I thought I did. And then a few months later, someone would say, Hey, you know, what about procrastination? I'd be like, Oh, listen to my deep dive. So somehow I got it in my head and it's just locked in there. <laughs> so maybe that's like some weird procrastination thing, but it's bizarre that in 13 years of doing this podcast, I have not done an episode on procrastination. I mean, it is a frequent question, man. And so I want to do an episode on that. And there are many angles to it. There are, there are so many different angles to it that have nothing to do with laziness or willpower. Uh, and so I want to do that. I want to do a deep dive on each defense in psychoanalysis. You know, there's like 50 different defenses and I want to do a real good deep dive on the history of defense mechanisms and really go deep into each one of them, have some really good, rich examples of that. It's going to take me time to, to do all that kind of research. And so, and so those are just off the top of my head and I am dying to do those, but I do not have the time in the next couple of months. So I hope y'all will be okay with that. But once we get through this threshold then it's deep dive heaven. All right. Well, that does it for that episode of psychology in Seattle. Thank you so much patrons for being patrons and everyone out there, please take care of yourself and take care of others because you really, really deserve it. You really, really do. 